Here we go. So I want to um, first just maybe just express how touched I am with um, everyone. And um, haven't seen all of you in the interviews, but most of you at this point, and tomorrow will be all. But of course, I've also heard from a number of people with questions and so at this point I'm kind of just in love with you all, the heart. Because, you know, it takes incredible amount of courage and vulnerability to, to show up in our lives and to be real. And so I, I just feel that sense of the realness, the genuineness. And I feel so alive when I'm around realness. Even though at times what we might hear and is some pain, and of course some insight and joy, but the, it's alive. I feel I, some ways I feel the most alive sometimes during retreat, where we can really talk to the heart of things. And of course, the practice is to bring that heart of things out into the world and into our lives, because perhaps that's what so many of us are longing for—is to be seen, to be heard, to be loved and to love, to be real. So, um, it's a little reading about realness that I love a lot. It's from The Velveteen Rabbit by Marjorie Williams. What is real, asked the rabbit one day. Real isn't how you're made, said the skin horse as a thing that happens to you when a child loves you for a long, long time and not just plays with you, but really loves you, then you become real. Does it hurt? asked the rabbit. Yes, it sometimes does, said the skin horse, but when you're real, you don't mind being hurt. Does it happen all at once or bit by bit, asked the rabbit. It doesn't happen all at once. To become real takes a long time. And that's why it doesn't happen to people who break easy or who have to be carefully kept or who have sharp edges. Generally, by the time you're real, most of your hair has been loved off (laughs) and your eyes drop out. And you get loose in the joints and get very, very shabby. But these things don't matter at all because once you're real, you can't be ugly, except to people who don't understand. And once you're real, you can't be unreal again. It lasts for always. So perhaps this practice is really about helping us to become real and it does take time to see things as they are, to clearly see into our pain and the way out of it, the way to lessen it. We are all here on the path of awakening. The seed of awakening is planted inside every one of you. Tonight I want to speak about the causes and extension from last night, uh, more probing into these causes of suffering. 
And if there's time, maybe a little bit of questioning around who am I? We'll see if we get there. First, just to set the story, as uh, many of you know, um, these teachings were realized and discovered by the Buddha. And he was born in Lumbini in around 623 BC, and at the age of 29, a series of events happened in his life that set him off into the forest to understand what is this life. We've referred to them already in talks about these heavenly messengers, the messengers of aging, illness, death, and awakening. And it's a very moving story, the story of Siddhartha Gautama, which is what his name, and he was a prince and brought up in a palace, destined to become a great king. And yes, at the age of 29, there was these series of events that shook him to his core. In Pali, there's a word, it's called samvega. Samvega means when you realize that death can come at any moment, it catapults you into a sense of spiritual urgency. What is this life? You could say that Siddhartha had this type of samvega consciousness big time. Even though he had everything that anyone would want of his age, being a prince and education and all the gadgets of the day, his heart was set upon understanding what is this life and this last heavenly messenger where he saw someone that looked very different than any other person he ever met that was calm and serene. And when he asked his friend Chana, who is this person? And Chana said, this is a holy person. This is a person dedicated to awakening. And at that moment, Siddhartha knew this is what he must do. He left the palace. It's good to know that a number of years later, he came back to the palace, to his son, to his wife, to his father, shared with them what he learned. But what he learned, he learned for himself underneath the Bodhi tree after practicing for so many years, mastering many different types of meditative practices, but still not finding what is this life. And then for a period of time practicing severe self-mortification to the point where he was near collapse. It was said that he ate just one grain of rice a day. And as he touched his belly, he could feel his backbone. And on the brink of this collapse, he realized the futility of these extreme self-mortification practices and decided to care for his body, to restore his health. And taking a seat underneath the Bodhi tree, the tree of awakening, he made a resolve that there was nowhere else to go, no other teacher to see, and that he was going to sit and find out for himself, what is this life? And there's a moving account that always touches me. Sometimes it brings up even some tears of, of as he was sitting at the beginning underneath the tree, he recalled the time when he was a young boy. And he was sitting underneath another tree on a beautiful day, just like the days we get around here. And it was the beginning of um, the planting season, and He was just enjoying the beauty of the day. Oh, beautiful. 
And he happened to gaze over and there were some farmers with oxen and they were putting the plows, the first plow digging into the earth and his sensitivity was so heightened due to that beautiful, beautifulness of the day. As he saw the plow go into the ground, there was just that sense of almost as if he could hear the cries of the worms being cut open with the blade of the plow. And he was filled in that moment with such despair. Ah, oh, it was a, quite a moment, a moment of this despair and a moment of the beauty of the world, this paradox that we have at times. And perhaps as a way of self-soothing, he began to just become aware of his breath in and out. And he recalled this memory as he was sitting underneath the Bodhi tree, and he began at that moment to breathe in and to breathe out, settling his body and mind. And it said during this time, he delved deeper into the practice, building his concentration and awareness, And underneath that Bodhi tree, he came to some profound realizations that are now called the Four Noble Truths, but really they were realizations. Realizations of the truth of of suffering, that suffering does exist. And it wasn't that it ended with this realization that suffering exists, there was much more to that, but this profound acknowledgement that You know, there's birth, there's aging, there's being around those that you don't like, there's getting a flat tire, there's all the different things of life. It is said the root word in Pali for suffering is dukkha, and one colleague of mine said that it comes from actually another original word called thaduk, and thaduk stands for a wheel that is not quite round, and every time it goes around it goes thaduk, thaduk, thaduk. It's just not quite, it's like a, can't quite fit it in just right. Yes, we have this beautifulness in the world, but there also is dissatisfactoriness, challenges, insecurities. So this first realization was the noble truth of suffering. And with that realization, he was probing deeply into what, if there is suffering, there is a cause. There must be a cause. And In this investigation, the Buddha had a a profound realization of the causes of suffering. To me, this particular um, realization just strikes so deep in the deepest part of my heart. Because I also feel like if there's a cause, there's maybe a way out of the cause. So the third noble truth speak about that pathway to its cessation. And tonight I really want to speak about this cause. There's a very beautiful translation of the noble truth of the cause of suffering by Ajahn Amaro, an Englishman who's a bhikkhu, a monk, and... Mary Grace is dear friends with them, and I, of course, know him, very fond of him as well. And I I think he's uh, rendered here one of the most hauntingly, just beautiful and powerful translations of um, this noble truth of the cause of suffering. So this is what he says. He says, this bhikkhus, or this monks, is the noble truth of the cause of suffering, and it is craving. Craving that is compelling 
and intoxicating, which causes us to be born into things again and again, ever seeking delight now, here and now, there. It is namely the craving for sensual delight, the craving to be something, and the craving to feel nothing. Mm. <laughs> craving that is compelling and intoxicating. Anybody know that one? <laughs> yeah. Which causes us to be born into things again and again, ever seeking delight now, here and now, there. Namely, this craving for sensual delight, the craving to be something, to be somebody, the craving to feel nothing. I also want to acknowledge that actually there is even a deeper root of the cause of suffering that informs and fuels craving and grasping, and that is ignorance, unawareness, not seeing clearly. This is the main root of all sufferings, is unawareness. This cycle of unawareness feeds our suffering. Mary Grace spoke about it last night, this um, dependent origination, this cycle of suffering, a domino, a chain of events, conditions that lead to suffering. My teacher, Tampulu Sero, he has a very beautiful rendering of dependent origination that's fairly simple. He says, if you know, it will break. If you don't know, you will go around and around. So the knowing is the breaking of this domino effect of reactivity of suffering. So even Tempulu Sero, he was so much emphasizing on the knowing, that knowledge and knowing, that knowing will bring you knowledge. So he went through a whole teaching if you have greed or hatred and ignorance arising in the eyes, the ears, the nose, the tongue, the body, the mind, if you know that greed or hatred or ignorance is arising, you are gaining knowledge. If you don't know, you're accumulating ignorance. So this knowing brings us knowledge. So I'd like to unpack a little bit this rendering of the causes of suffering. Again, speaking about the craving for sensual delight, the craving to be something or somebody, and the craving to feel nothing. So that first craving that the Buddha talked about was the craving for sensual delight, and perhaps we could say it's kind of like the eros instinct, libidinal instinct, It's a craving, as I mentioned before, that is intoxicating, compelling. And it manifests itself in many ways. Food, sex, shopping, work. I'm always even amazed these days, like you go on Amazon, one click. You got it, one click. I want it, one click. You get it, one click. I want it. And it's a rush. It feels good. One click. Boom. You got it but it doesn't last. So you have to click again for another one and it feels really good. It's a shot. I want it. 
compelling, intoxicating. It's fun. But it gives us birth into these things again and again. And, you know, we're householders, so when you hear the words craving, like, oh my God. So there's a difference between craving and desire. Like, you know, no one wants to be like a French poodle on the ankle. This is this grasping, it's clinging. And so, in some ways, we can say this type of grasping, it, it, I mean, when you think about it, it's a longing. It's a longing to be whole, to be at home, to feel good. One time I was eating some tofuti ice cream. I'm a vegan, so I love tofuti ice cream. And I was eating it, and it was tasting so good, I was happy as could be. I was at home. And then I noticed there was only one bite left. And I thought to myself, what the hell am I going to do? What am I going to do? It's not going to last. And I I felt that pain. Well, I'll just go get another bowl. I I didn't do that. But I could just see, like, but what was it about when I'm in that experience of satiation? I'm at home. It feels good. But it's dependent upon something outside of me that's intrinsically conditioned to not be permanent. So this longing in some ways is rooted in a deficiency that somehow outside of ourself I can be whole by getting this. You know, everything was really wonderful in our lives and we were in the womb, it was all right, but then we grew and got too big and we got pushed out. And that powerful moment when the cord was cut, it's a powerful moment in our lives. Before we were in this world, we were, we were piped in, fed, and we were fine. And then we were pushed out and the cord was cut. That is huge. That cord was cut. And perhaps we've been trying to find our way back home. But that home is not outside of us. So this craving for sensual delight that gives us into birth, into things again and again, and it's compelling and intoxicating. So we're bringing our awareness to that type of, of, of dukkha, that type of suffering, then we're looking outside of ourselves to become whole. It never ends, as Kabir would say. Friend, please tell me what I can do about this world that I hold on to, and it keeps spinning out. I gave up my sewn cloths and I wore a robe, but then I noticed one day the cloth was well woven, so I bought some burlap, but I still throw it elegantly over my shoulder. I pulled back my sexual longings and now I discover I'm angry a lot. I gave up rage and now I notice I'm greedy all day. I worked hard at dissolving the greed and now I'm proud of myself. (laughs) It goes on and on. craving to be someone. I, I, I. I'm Bob Stahl. I drive a Prius. I'm a meditation teacher. I'm this. I'm that. I'm special. Oh, boy. (laughs) So Emily Dickinson says, I'm nobody. Who are you? Are you nobody too? Then there's a pair of us, but don't tell. They'd banish us, you know. 
How dreary to be somebody, how public like a frog to tell your name, the live long day to an admiring bog. This is a big suffering, this wanting to be someone special. I also don't want this to be confused that it is so important in our development that we are seen and acknowledged and honored as human beings. It's when somehow it takes a turn that that our definition of who we are is dependent upon you telling me I'm special. It's kind of like this old country western song that I'm looking for love in all the wrong places. Born out of that deep sense of deficiency again that somehow you're going to fill me up to make me whole. And it manifests itself in so many ways. How many times when I look at my own life have I left myself to want to be liked, to want to be seen, to want to be understood? And as, and as much as I've experienced this leaving myself, it, it's caused such pain because I'm somehow dependent upon others to make me feel whole. This is our big work, discovering our own wholeness as a human being. So this craving to be someone is very deeply rooted. And we should not confuse it with these essential needs as a human being to be seen, to be honored again. It's when we somehow define ourselves by what others, we think others think of us. So the last craving to feel nothing. And to be honest, um, for a number of years, I, I didn't quite relate to that. I didn't really know what that meant that well. Then a couple of years ago, actually while I was teaching a meditation retreat, I was, um, we were in the midst of a family crisis with the possibility that my older son had lymphoma. Fortunately, he didn't. He had mono. I love mono. But it was a scary time during that week. And I noticed it was quite amazing. And I was actually preparing to give a a talk on this. And then I said, oh, now I know what the Buddha means by the craving to feel nothing. Because what I wanted to do, I mean, I had to show up for the meditations and I was there. But as soon as it was done, I went to my room and I went to sleep. And I just wanted to sleep, 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 sleep. And, and I'd wake up and it'd be okay for about a half a second till the overwhelming feeling like, oh God, is Ben going to be okay? And then I'd be, oh, this is what the Buddha's talking about. I did not want to feel it. It was too painful. And then from there I began to realize all the different places in my life that I don't want to feel, whether I'm watching television or reading or this. Or that. I mean, there's a million things that can take me away so I don't have to feel what's here. It's kind of like the Thanatos instinct. Not wanting to be here. Now, of course, Middle Path, I like science fiction. I watch it. But again, this sense of not wanting to feel nothing. And when it comes to a place where it's intoxicating, compelling, it's a source of pain. So ultimately, all of these three aspects of craving, sensual delight, to be someone, 
to feel nothing is based in a deficiency. A deficiency that somehow outside of ourselves we will find this peace rooted in our unawareness. And I also just want to say that you know, desire in itself is not, we don't want to come across it as morally wrong or evil, but just to understand that it is a cause of dissatisfactoriness, a cause of suffering. So in this practice, we're beginning to penetrate into these causes and the pathway towards freedom that I trust that we'll be speaking more about, the Noble Eightfold Path. So the question arises in the Dharma about who actually is suffering. One of the most radical teachings within the Dharma is this powerful question of who am I? What's this universe? And of course we've been speaking about the mystery. Breathing in, don't. Breathing out, no. Don't know. Not very comfortable. Rod McClaver, he writes, why do we exist? There's 50 trillion cells that make up the human body and each of those cells in turn consists of atoms. Countless millions or billions of them depending on the function of the specific cell. And of the atoms, they consist mostly of empty space. Protons and neutrons surrounded by electrons. Empty space, just as the universe is mostly empty space. The human body, this entity of mostly empty space, is a space held together, a space unified, even for only a little while. The atoms that existed, the atoms existed before the human body, and they'll exist after life is gone. But in the meantime, in the short interval, who are we? Why are we here? What is this all about? So we've been diving into the body. It's actually very wonderful today. A person mentioned um, something about like if my kidneys go wrong, it's really not my fault because you know I don't have any ownership over the kidneys. The kidneys just do what they do. It's a sense of the ownerless nature of things and this body begins to reveal that. As much as you might want to assert body don't age, don't get sick, can't control it. So this mystery of the body. This body is mysterious, and I, I've been enjoying some of you, the discussions in the groups about this practice with the body parts. There's a Zen poet in my hometown in Santa Cruz, and she was introduced to the 32 parts of the body, and she said, I don't like that. So as a poet, she said, she said I, I, I just created my own practice, and she called it the 110 functions of the body. So I'm going to read it to you. Inhaling, exhaling, smelling, coughing, sniffing, sneezing, hungering, thirsting, licking, sucking, tasting, biting, chewing, salivating, spitting, lubricating, swallowing, belching, hiccuping, vomiting, 
transporting, digesting, selecting, absorbing, storing, burning, building, copying, creating, destroying, cramping, flatulating, defecating, pumping, distributing, filtering, excreting, holding, urinating, listening, seeing, blinking, dilating, crying, speaking, humming, singing, screaming, whispering, smiling, frowning, laughing, upholding, anchoring, proprioceptive, sitting, standing, balancing, walking, running, jumping, dancing, hugging, tensing, relaxing, contracting, stretching, trembling, enclosing, excluding, warming, shivering, cooling, sweating, itching, scratching, shredding, moving, touching, feeling, engorging, climaxing, sleeping, snoring, dreaming, waking, menstruating, conceiving, bearing, birthing, suckling, growing, fatiguing, breaking, aching, ailing, paining, fevering, replenishing, cleansing, hosting, engulfing, killing, collecting, repairing, clotting, blocking, swelling, dying, decaying. Whew. We can chant that tomorrow morning. <laughs> Only joking. It's different ways to look at this body. Who is this self? Of course, Rene Descartes claims and states, I think, therefore I am. The question the Dharma is, who is this I am and where, where is it? Where is it? So again, one of the most radical teachings in the Dharma is this teaching of the selfless, egoless nature of things. As I mentioned too, that um, another aspect that sometimes the Buddha talks about is that um, there's a lack of control. As I mentioned earlier, like if you, know, you could say no aging, no illness, no death, then um, there'd be some control here, but there's no control. Is that self found in the head here, or the body here, the nails, teeth, the skin, or what that person said, the kidneys? Is the self found in the elements that make up the body, in the atoms, the protons, the electrons, in the solids, the liquids, the motion, the temperature? Where is this me? Even Alice in Wonderland had the same question. The caterpillar and Alice looked at each other for some time in silence. And at last, the caterpillar took out the hookah out of its mouth and addressed her in a languid, sleepy voice. Who are you? asked the caterpillar. This was not an encouraging opening for conversation, Ellis replied rather shyly. I, 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 I hardly know, sir, just at present. At least I know who I was when I got up this morning, but I think I must have been changed several times since then. What, what, what do you mean? The caterpillar said sternly, explain yourself. Well, I, I can't explain myself, I'm afraid, sir, said Alice, because I'm not myself, you see. I'm not myself. Even neuroscience is trying to discover where is the self? Is it in the brain? Is it in the body? Rick Hansen, author of... Um, Buddha's brain and other books. He's a neuropsychologist. So this is a, some words from the Buddha brain. So he says that from a neurological standpoint, the everyday feeling of being a unified self is an utter illusion. The apparently coherent and solid I is actually built from many subsystems 
in many sub-subsystems over the course of development with no fixed center. And the fundamental sense that there is a subject of experience is fabricated from a myriad of disparate moments of subjectivity. It's kind of mouthful. So where is the self? It's not in the brain. It's, could it be in the body? So in the body, for example, it makes a new stomach lining every five days. The body makes a new liver every six weeks. The body replaces new head hair every two to five years, except for me. The body replaces new eyebrows every three to five months. The body grows new skin once a month. The body replaces with a new skeleton every seven years. 50,000 of the cells in your body will die and be replaced with new cells, all while you're listening to me read this sentence. Radioactive isotype studies show that the body replaces 98% of its atoms in less than one year. So in other words, at any given moment, the parts of the body are appearing and disappearing because they are atoms. So if you think you are your physical body, which body are you talking about? The body you have today is not the same as it was yesterday. These teachings of the selfless nature of things comes from the second discourse that the Buddha taught called the Anatta Lakana Sutta, the discourse of no self or selfless nature. In these teachings, the Buddha points to three marks of existence that all conditioned things are subject to. And first is suffering, and second is impermanence, and the third is the selfless nature of thing. I love uh, my colleague, uh, John Kabat-Zinn. He has a more of a uh, contemporary translation of these three marks. So for suffering, he says, shit happens. For impermanence, things change. The selflessness, don't take it personally. So, of course, impermanence is something I think that we all can understand, even though there is this myth thinking that everyone else is going to die but not me. But we see that the time is a changing, and that the only thing that doesn't change is change. In Buddhist psychology, the mind is considered to be a sense organ, which is a little bit different than our five um, sense Western world. So just as the eye sees, the tongue tastes, the nose smells, the ears hear, the body feels, in Buddhist psychology, what does the mind do? It thinks, it analyzes, it scrutinizes, it compares, it contrasts, it likes, it dislikes. It's just what it does. It's function. Its function is to They have thoughts. And of course, these thoughts and these interpretations can create worlds. Remember once, driving in San Francisco many years ago on one of these very narrow streets, and there was a car parked right in the street, and I couldn't get around. And I'm beeping the horn, and the guy's not moving. I'm like, what the heck? And so I get up on the curb, and I'm going past him, and I turn over to let him have it, and there was no one sitting in the car. (laughs) 
so much for my perceptions, for my thoughts, my interpretations. So we have this mind, this cognitive faculty, it's like hardware, but the software is our interpretations, our lenses, how we see the narratives of our lives. So perhaps we can say that we're getting a wisdom update here, maybe. Well, we hear about wisdom 2.0, maybe the meditation practice is a wisdom 3.0. Getting an update to see more clearly our hearts. With awareness, there's a chance of making a change. So this is from Margaret Wheatley. She says that I know that we notice what we notice because of who we are. And we create ourselves by what we choose to notice. And once this work of self-authorship has begun, we inhabit the world we've created and we self-seal. And we don't notice anything except those things that confirm what we already think about who we already are. When we succeed in moving outside of our normal processes of self-reference, and can look upon ourselves with awareness, we have a chance of changing. We can break the seal. The differences between self-reference and awareness, we can begin to break the seal. One of the qualities that sometimes is spoken about with the Buddha is that he attained or experienced the unconditioned. And there's a number of different ways that that could be rendered. And one way that I'm, would like, I'm fond of is that what, what, if, if he attained the unconditioned, it's implying that he must have broke through the conditioned. And it's the conditioning, perhaps, our narrative, our stories, our limited self-definitions of who we think we are. So this is where our journey begins, from self-reference to awareness, to begin to break the seal. So perhaps the, not that we, I would say, to, to negate the narratives, the stories of our lives, because this is the very material that we work with to awaken. It cannot be bypassed. It cannot be unacknowledged, but to be seen, to be understood, to be known. Just as the Buddha was awakening, and he was underneath the Bodhi tree, and this manifestation of a being called Mara that you could consider to be a psychological aspect or a, a being, that Mara was very concerned that the Buddha was waking up and didn't want that to happen, and he sent out his armies to distract him, to scare him. And, and there was almost this metaphor of all these arrows were being coming towards him, and the Buddha being now fully awake and seeing through all fear, just said to Mara, I see you, Mara. And the arrows turned into flowers. And then Mara, very angry, got out the armies of seduction. I'll seduce him. We'll get him away from this. And again, the Buddha, I see you, Mara seeing through the conditioning, seeing through the compelling, intoxicating, pulling forces to see clearly. Sometimes called that the uh, noble ones are the fearless ones. They have conquered fear. 
wonderful aspirations for us all. So with awareness, we can begin to break the seal. So I'll just end with a beautiful reading from a Thai master, Achan Buddhadasa. He says, Nothing whatsoever should be clung to as I or mine. To understand this is to heal all illness and sorrow. Let yourself be still without grasping or resisting. The wise person lives with an open and free heart that does not cling to anything. This is the peace of nirvana. It is always here, available whenever we let go. And as Achan Shah would say, it's a wonderful saying but difficult to experience. He says, if you let go a little bit, you'll have a little happiness. If you let go a lot, you'll have a lot of happiness. If you let go completely, you'll have complete happiness. But how do we let go? This is our practice. So let us just sit for a few minutes. Actually, I will offer you a very beautiful short meditation that my teacher, Tampulu Sero, taught us. And he said this was a wonderful meditation to die with and a wonderful meditation to experience freedom. So it can be both. And to me, it's a meditation that um, gives us a taste. Some of us ask, well, what, what, can we even just get a little taste of freedom? Can't we just have a little bit? So yeah, we can. So just with the breath now, as you breathe in and breathe out, just experience what it feels like in that breath in and out, that there's no grasping or desiring or longing for anything. Just totally content just with the breath in and breath out. Breathing in and out, no craving. As you breathe in and out with no craving, it just opens into a place of contentedness just as things are. Just allowing for a moment to feel into that. Doesn't have to be different. Then with the next few breaths in and breaths out, experiencing what it feels like to be filled with loving kindness with generosity, compassion. So you're breathing in and out. There's no anger, no hatred, just this lovingness, compassion, the qualities of the heart. And then for the next few breaths, in this reflection of no ignorance, full clarity, full awareness, as you breathe in, you're knowing you're breathing in as you're breathing in, and you're knowing that you're breathing out as you're breathing out. You're clear, 
you're knowing, aware, awake. Perhaps you can agree, not a bad way to live and not a bad way to die. Breathing in and out, contentment, loving kindness, and clarity. May all beings find the gateways into the heart and may they dwell with peace. So thank you so much and time for some walking and then we'll have a closing meditation. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.